Welcome, you're listening to Poverty Focus. This podcast series brings together experts in their fields to discuss new poverty research and public policy. I'm Mikhail Kurlander, a professor of education at UC Davis, and it is my pleasure today to host visiting scholar David Figlio. Figlio is the Orrington Lund Professor of Education and Social Policy and of Economics at Northwestern University, as well as the Director of the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern. He studies a wide range of education and health policy issues from school accountability and standards to welfare policy and policy design. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. So David, your work has explored, among many other things, the role of socioeconomic status, in particular income uh, or family background, on a host of children's outcomes through the life course from birth through college. Can you describe a bit the links between family background and children's outcomes? Sure. Um, So uh, my research in general really is interested in two kind of interrelated things. One is documenting the um, ways in which people who have certain advantages are able to convey those advantages to their uh, children and the ways in which people who are disadvantaged may have difficulty uh, conveying them. And part of that then is about understanding just simply these relationships. And the second is uh, what is the way in which maybe institutions play into the role of this intergenerational transmission of advantage? So um, a lot of the, we're learning more in my research and others that a lot of the inequality starts before children are even born. Um, there's a very strong advantage gradient when it comes to um, neonatal health. Uh, more advantaged people tend to be healthier at birth. Um, they tend, um, uh, and there are a lot of things that we don't even know yet about, uh, that could help to be part of this as well. So for example, um, with regard to exposure to environmental toxicants in utero, we know that disadvantaged people are more likely to be exposed to environmental toxicants in utero that manifests itself in terms of worse neonatal health but it actually manifests itself even more in terms of later uh, a, a later um, cognitive development and one of the reasons between behind that is because uh, partially that's because um, poor neonatal health translates into poorer cognitive outcomes itself, but also because there are things about our brain development that's happening in utero that don't yet show up when you're born, but show up later on when you start using your brain a lot more. Um, So in that regard, before kids are even born, um, low-income, disadvantaged family kids have uh, are, are already at a disadvantage. And one of the reasons behind that is because of the neighborhoods, the exposure to uh, toxicants that are where they are. But then the environmental toxicant thing. So sometimes rich people live closer to environmental toxicants as well. Um, it turns out that poor families, less educated kids from less educated families, poorer families are more um, 
sensitive to these environmental toxicants in utero than richer families. That could happen through a number of different reasons. For one thing, maybe what happens is richer families are more able to um, shield themselves against the negative effects of these toxicants while mom is gestating. It could also be, and this is something we don't yet really know, uh, but we're learning more and more about the male germline, that um, dads, before the baby's even conceived, dads from disadvantaged families families might be um, more sensitive to certain types of uh, uh, environmental insults that goes and gets transmitted to the kid. Um, and um, that's something that's going on. And then, of course, we also it may also be the case that uh, richer, more advantaged families are able to do more things to help their kids overcome some of these disadvantages. Um, we all know that there are lots of things in the private market that we can do to buy to help to provide remediation that rich families are just more able to do than poorer families. So that's before kids are born. Mm -hmm. And then what happens, right? These kids are disadvantaged families, have fewer resources. We're learning more and more that, um, that nutrition, for example, is extremely important. Um, uh, a former uh, uh, UC Davis faculty member, Hillary Hoynes, has done some really breathtaking and groundbreaking work with my co current colleague, Diane Schanzebach, and others that show just the importance of uh, early, um, early life uh, access to uh, nutritional programs, for example, in terms of later outcomes. Um, richer families, more advantaged families don't have to worry about that to nearly the same degree. Then you get into schools. School quality matters. Poorer families have fewer, have less access to quality schools than uh, richer families do. Um, it's also the case that poorer families also often feel less agency in terms of advocating for their children with, uh, with um, school professionals. And so these things just compound and compound and compound. So it's kind of a depressing portrait, yeah. but I guess that's one of the reasons for a center like the Center for Poverty Research, right? Right. So, I mean, in particular, you've, you've spent a lot of your career thinking about schools, mm -hmm. which um, we also believe may have some moderating or, or have some abilities to attenuate some of the inequalities we see. Can you say a little bit more about the processes by which we think school quality or schools may impact uh, low-income students? Well, we spend lots and lots and lots of our uh, time in formal education when we're children. Um, and um, uh, school quality unambiguously makes a difference for people's lives. Um, we know that there are some schools that help to dramatically improve uh, uh, people's life chances, and there are other schools that seem to, compare to others, hold kids back. Um, most of these schools um, don't necessarily close gaps between uh, advantaged and disadvantaged kids, but lift all boats. So in some regards, it's easy for us to sometimes think school quality doesn't make a difference because school quality doesn't seem to um, uh, equalize uh, the outcomes of advantage versus disadvantage. But we do know that there are some good schools uh, that help everybody, and there are some not so good schools that don't help everybody by nearly as much. Um, uh, well, what do we know? We know 
that advantaged kids are more likely to go to the good schools and disadvantaged kids are more likely to go to the less good schools. So even uh, so in terms of access to these schools, advantaged kids have this extra leg up. They've already started at a much higher level because of all the things I was mentioning before. And now they're going to these good schools with better teachers and more resources and and um, and. Uh, uh, different types of pedagogical practices that are aimed at education and maybe less about crowd control and all those different types of things. And the disadvantaged kids are often going to school, disproportionately going to schools that have fewer of those benefits. And so that's one reason why I think we're seeing bigger widening gaps. It's not necessarily, and, and this is a challenge, right? Um, we can't force people to teach at particular schools. And so if it turns out that teachers are more good teachers are more likely to want to teach at at uh better schools for example and that better schools also tend to be attracting richer families who can pay in to buy their way into those better schools this can help to perpetuate inequality and it's not because anybody's bad or evil it's just that's one of the things that happens with a system right and are there sort of social policies that we could be investigating that might help um reduce some of the sort of distributional differences between where low income and higher and more advantaged families end up sending their children to school? Sure. So, I mean, I think there's a number of different types of things that could happen. So one is that in the United States, um, school spending is highly related to um, <clears throat> to how much um, uh, money can be locally raised. That's less the case in a place like California that has basically full state funding. But we know that even that, even a place like California, um, even if it turns out that rich school districts and poor school districts, or I should say school districts that, ser that serve rich families and those that serve poor families, uh, have official spending levels that are relatively similar, still in a place like California, you can have locally raised uh, different local uh, bond measures for construction. Um, so you can have, uh, we are learning more and more about the importance of school buildings as a mechanisms for facilitation of learning, for example. And so even if the amount of money we're spending on per pupil expenditures and current educational expenditures is the same, rich families who can tax themselves more are buying, building, buying and building nicer buildings that are more conducive to learning, or for that matter, are just healthier. Um, and poorer families who can't tax themselves as much are not doing that. And then, of course, there's all this stuff that's uh, sub rosa, um, such as there are some uh, schools that serve rich families that are uh, raising thousands of dollars per pupil per year in voluntary contributions from families. So you have families who are prohibited from taxing themselves to um, pay more for their, their kids' schooling, but they're voluntarily forming these uh, quasi-governmental agencies, that is like your PTA, mm -hmm. that is helping to uh, do these types of things. So people have, and again, there, some people think of this as kind of sinister. I don't. I mean, everybody wants to provide the best, uh, the best outcomes mm -hmm. possible for their kids, and rich families have a lot more resources for being able to do it. So, of course, we could have we could move to centralized uh, school funding. Um, that's a little hard in this country to do that, in part because. Um, in part because we have a long history of local control. 
Uh, and so school funding is going to be a piece of that. We can do certain things. We can have central programs to help to, to do it. But school funding is only a tiny little piece of this. Now, states or the federal government could conceivably do things to try to help to encourage the best and the brightest teachers to teach in schools that are serving relatively disadvantaged kids. So that could help to somewhat upset that apple cart. We know that excellent teaching is um, is huge. Um, we have you have an education school here that is uh, very well regarded nationally for for its work in uh, innovative thinking about teaching and learning, for example. We know that there are um, we we uh, we know that there are other types of things uh, that could be done as well. There's another possibility that's all within the public school system. So there are other other possibilities. Everything I'm describing is thinking about tying schooling to residential location. Well, we can imagine ways that could help to break that link between schooling and residential location. So some people have been thinking about proposing uh, questions, uh, proposing things like school vouchers, for example, allowing access to private schools or offering choice school, other school, public schools of choice or magnet programs or charter schools. Those types of things help to um, break the link between uh, residential location and schools. Um, there are some things that suggest that these things might help, mm -hmm. but uh, also there's a lot of research that suggests that we could do more harm than good if we're not careful. Um, so uh, I've done joint work with your colleague Cassie Hart, for example, studying question studying questions about what is school what does school vouchers do if we give school vouchers for low income kids, and one of the things that we find there is that it seems like the extra competition associated with school vouchers helps to make public schools just a little bit better. But the key there is just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's not doing huge things. I've seen some research studies that have shown that kids who get access to high quality, uh, high quality schools of choice, be they private schools or public schools of choice, really do a lot better. So this is great study by Dave Deming and Justine Hastings and Doug Steger, for example, that shows that kids who win the lottery to go to a school they really public school they really want to go to in Charlotte Mecklenburg are doing amazingly better and certain especially the girls you can get back to that in a moment if you want mm -hmm. um, but then there's other studies for example there's this new study by Attila Abdul Kadirolu and others uh, studying school vouchers in Louisiana to show the people who win the lottery end up doing so much worse than they would have if they'd gone to their public schools it's all about what the choice, what schools are they leaving? What schools are they able to go to? What are the system? What's the system design? And I think that's something that's exciting about the work that all of us are collectively doing in terms of thinking about policy design. You can't just set up a policy and assume it's going to work well uh, because people have this uh, crafty way of getting around uh, a lot of the things we really want to do. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about boys versus girls. You recently released um, a paper this fall on family disadvantage and the gender gap um, in both behavioral and educational outcomes. And in particular, um, you investigate why boys fare worse than girls in low-income house low households. Can you first uh, describe what we mean by the gender gap in educational attainment in the U.S.? Sure. So for... For decades, girls have been mopping the floor with boys in uh, in um, uh, education um, in certain dimensions. So if you look, for example, at 
grades and classroom performance. Girls, I mean, since, since my grandmother's era, have been doing better than boys. But historically what's happened is that um, girls had not been attaining to the same level as boys. They'd been uh, less likely to finish high school. They'd been less likely to go to college and, and that type of thing. Well, one thing started happening as more labor market opportunities became available for women, um, there be, that, that changed some of the incentives and girls started to, uh, I should say now as you're getting older, women um, have been essentially supplanting men, uh, not just in the things where the girls have been doing better than the boys for, for generations and generations, but also in some areas that they hadn't been doing before. So more and more now women are graduating from high school at much higher rates than men are uh, at this point. Um, it's been the steady increase in women going to college at much higher rates than men, not only starting college, but completing college. They tend to go to more selective colleges and universities. One reason that that's true is because of the things I just mentioned before. They do better in school. Um, <clears throat> so in all sorts, of, all sorts of dimensions now, women are outperforming men in, um, in basically any educational outcome you can imagine, right? Grad school too now women are going to grad school at higher rates than men so I mean every at every level so that's the that's the that's the first thing um, but um, uh, but I don't know <laughs> so, yeah so in particular I think your paper is able to sort of explore gender differences mm -hmm. um, among different subgroups different racial sure. ethnic groups. And you're able to really look at some of the potential sources for these gender gaps, um, in particular, the role of family disadvantage, neighborhood environment, school quality. Mm -hmm. Can you describe a little bit the, the sort of racial ethnic differences and also what you're able to tease out in this paper or at least rule out as, pl as plausible explanations for those gaps? Sure, that's great. Um, so um, all those all those patterns that I've been describing are well known. The things I've mentioned before about boy. It, uh, women uh, outperforming men in every dimension of education now um, uh, is is something that's not novel to this research. Although um, although I think that that we contribute a few little pieces around the edges. One thing that isn't as well known is that there's a massive differences across racial and ethnic groups. So all of the things I've mentioned are particularly strong for African-American families and also particularly strong, um, though slightly less pronounced, for Latino, Latina families. Um, now, what could be possible explanations for that? There's lots of different things people have talked about um, as, far as, possible, as far as possible explanations go, but really none of them have been super satisfying. So my co-authors and I started to think, well, how about family disadvantage? So one thing we know is that um, African-American, Latino families are objectively, dramatically less advantaged than white families are in the United States. Um, so could family disadvantage play a role in helping to explain this? Um, well, to help to break this, uh, to help to break, study this, what my co-authors and I did was study pairs of siblings. And we studied siblings where you had one boy and one girl. And sometimes the boy comes first and then the girl. Sometimes the girl comes first and then the boy. That's important because birth order is so important. So we wanted to make sure this wasn't just about birth order. If people 
if people in different groups started out by having a boy and then stopped, for example, and then the people who we end up seeing girls are different in some important way, that would be a problem, but that's not going on at all. Um, so we're able to totally rule out birth order. That's the first thing. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, then there's some, then there's a number of different possible explanations. So one possible explanation for why, so, okay, what we find, right, is that the more disadvantaged you are, the worst boys do relative to their sisters. So the very so girls do better educationally than boys across all groups. The most advantaged to the least advantaged. But the gap is much, much bigger for the relatively disadvantaged families. All right, so now we have these relatively disadvantaged families. Um, uh, you may say, okay, well, could it be that, the, that boys are just... Um, could it be that boys from disadvantaged families started life, uh, started life weaker? All these things I was just describing about things like this neo, this neonatal health, for example, the in utero stresses. Do those in utero stresses seem to affect boys more than girls? And could that be an explanation? We can't fully rule that out, but we threw the kitchen sink at that thing, and we could not find any evidence whatsoever. Uh, on outcome after outcome after outcome. This is using birth records. And birth records have asked lots and lots and lots of questions that help us to deal with this. We couldn't find any evidence whatsoever, whatsoever that boys from disadvantaged families are starting life weaker than their sisters in comparison to, uh, to boys from advantaged families. So that makes us feel pretty strongly that the thing is happening, <clears throat> that the thing we're talking about is largely, sorry, allergies, <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what happens when we come from the Northland to California in pollen season. Um, so um, um, uh, we were able to, we feel pretty strenuously rule out that this is largely driven from neonatal or in utero effects. So then think about from the other side of things. Uh, when does this start to open up? When do these gaps really open up? And so there we were looking at kindergarten readiness and throughout schooling. And it looks like the gaps basically are there starting in kindergarten. And the gaps that we see for in kindergarten seem to be pretty stable throughout schooling. It's not that they grow more and more in schooling, which is making us think that actually it's probably early life that's the really big thing. Um, um, then we were able to try to do certain things like, okay, is it neighborhoods versus family? Poor families live in more disadvantaged neighborhoods. We can compare relatively advantaged to relatively disadvantaged kids going to the same, living in the same neighborhoods. And the relatively disadvantaged kids, we see bigger gender gaps to the relative advantaged kids in the same neighborhood. How about schools? We can look within the same schools and we see this as holding up within schools. All of this is making us think that a major uh, determinant here is um, something about these families per se and not necessarily the neighborhoods they live in or the schools in which they live. But there's one other thing I'll mention real quick, um, which is that that doesn't mean that schools don't make a difference. We find that for academic outcomes, school quality does matter. So in a companion piece to the piece that we were mentioning, we really try to dig deep into school quality. We look at the state of Florida rates all their schools based on value added. The higher the value added schools, the better the boys are doing. They're still doing worse than their sisters 
all the way all the way through but the gap between brothers and sisters is much bigger in low value added schools than in high value added schools so even though family factors matter more than school quality school quality does seem to make a difference in terms of helping the boys catch up at least a little bit to their sisters by the way it's not because good schools are dragging the sisters down girls do better across the advantage line the bigger the schools the more girls better girls do too but the boys do less do do less bad in higher quality schools than in lower quality schools so one of the reasons you're able to look at all of these health and educational outcomes and and um, attribute them to various sources is because you've of your amazing ability to harness large-scale administrative data throughout your career to answer a whole host of these questions about children's life outcomes can you talk a little bit as a researcher about the role of data and being able to really tease out um, uh, the outcomes you explore and the potential mechanisms for and the role of poverty? Administrative data are amazing in terms of the things they can really help us as members of society learn uh, at relatively low cost. So uh, administrative level data, for example, how are are great and at their population level. Everybody who goes to school is in the school records. Everybody who was born in Florida is in the birth records, for example. Um, they can be matched with high confidence uh, by agencies that are willing to share these. By the way, I didn't do the matching myself, mm-hmm. but the Florida Departments of Education and Health matched these data sets together for me and then gave me an anonymized data set. Um, so that's something that's very important for for people to think about as well, that, that if you can get agencies who are willing to cooperate with one another, you can end up with really great uh, multi-dimensional data sets. Now, one thing that's great about population level data is that you can study the effects of, di- on, of policies on different subgroups. Sometimes when sometimes in our work, we really think that things are going to matter um, uh, in uh, in really important ways for different groups. So your co your colleague, uh, Marion Bittler, for example, is one of the people who's really helped to revolutionize the way we all social scientists think about that. Um, um, So if you have small data sets, we can't study things for different subgroups. You have large-scale population data sets, you can study things for different subgroups. Likewise, sometimes there are mercifully very rare events that are really important to study. So I'm doing research, for example, on uh, autism spectrum disorders. Autism spectrum disorders affect about somewhere between 1% and 2% of the population. Well, if you have a, a data set with a 1,000 observations in it, you're probably going to have 10 or 20 kids with autism spectrum dis- uh, disorders, right? But if you have a data set with a million observations, you're going to have thousands of kids with autism spectrum disorders, and so you can really start to study those things well. Administrative data sets also are great for following up. So we often do these fabulous uh, experimental or quasi-experimental studies in which we're doing lots of great survey work, but then try to find these people 5, 10, 15 years later, and it would be enormously expensive. Well, in administrative data, we can have that. And likewise, um, administrative data don't suffer from recall bias. So that is, we... um, we know. So here's something that's kind of funny. So I, so when you register a kid for kindergarten in the state of Florida, you're asked, did the kid go to preschool last year? Well, that was just one year ago. Um, 
15% of kids who we know went to preschool because they went to public preschool have parents who say the kid didn't go to preschool, right? People are harried. We sometimes forget. We sometimes mark things wrong, that type of thing. Administrative data allow us the opportunity to also have higher quality data. And because they're already being collected, they're less expensive than a lot of other things. So data are incredibly powerful tool, but data themselves are only a tool, right? We still need really deep thinkers, people who are experts in different areas, people who are practitioners and researchers working together to help to understand and interpret what's going on, to think about these questions and that type of thing. So, so data are only as good as the brains that are being used to evaluate those data. Wonderful. And, and um, just as a last question, uh, since we have you here today um, at the Poverty Center, um, and we sit about, you know, 10 miles from Sacramento, can you talk to us a little bit about the ways in which you've uh, collaborated, engaged with policymakers in your role as the director of the Policy Research Institute at Northwestern, and how that has strengthened your work as a researcher and perhaps strengthened policymakers' work in trying to improve the lives of low-income children? Sure. So um, I believe very strongly that um, people who are policymakers and practitioners have the best interests of children at heart, and they really want to try to make people's lives better. And often they don't have, we don't agree with the best ways to do that. Um, but I find that by listening to people, seeing, hearing their insights, the people who are actually trying to deliver programs, for example, hearing what they're doing, that helps me to think about new ways to try to study, um, study the questions. And also I find that by uh, talking in a collaborative way with policymakers and practitioners that pe people are often much more um, open to hearing what I have to say too. Um, over my career, I spent a lot of time working with people in Washington, in state capitals, and in foreign, foreign capitals. And usually I spend more time listening than I do speaking. Um, I know that you, a lot of your colleagues and you are really, really, really uh, well known for that type of collaborative work as well. Uh, we're both on members of the board of directors of the Association for Education, Finance and Policy, which is the leading professional organization that's really aimed at that kind of crosstalk. I'm very happy you got elected to the board this year, Mikhail. Um, and... Um, uh, I think those are those are fantastic. I know that we are enriched through those collab those collaborations and conversations, and I know that there have been a number of pieces of evidence. So my research with Cassie Hart, your colleague, um, is a good piece, a, a good good thing uh, uh, to end with. Um, so after Cassie and I studied some of these effects of this voucher program in Florida. It not only was used by the state of Florida to help to think about the optimal ways to expand the program, but also was cited by uh, state legislators in a number of states around the country who were thinking about doing their own their own um, school voucher programs. Um, they ignored a lot of what we had to say, but some of the policies are a bit different because the research permeated into the ether. As long as we're somewhat modest in our expectations about what policymakers are going to do um, and very open to hearing what policymakers and practitioners have to say, lots of good things can happen. Thank you so much for joining us today. and We look forward to welcoming you back at UC Davis. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Ann Stevens, the director of the Center for Poverty Research at UC Davis, and I want to thank you for listening. 
The center is one of three federally designated poverty research centers in the United States. Our mission is to facilitate nonpartisan academic research on domestic poverty, to disseminate this research, and to train the next generation of poverty scholars. Core funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For more information about the center, visit us online at poverty.ucdavis.edu.